Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Uh, today we are going to travel back quite a ways to the 1300s uh, because we don't always get enough time to kind of dig into that older history. It takes a little bit of work because the records are not as clear as some of the more modern stuff. So, uh, But it's time. So we're going to talk about one of the battles of the Hundred Years' War, which is the Battle of Poitiers. Uh, this happened on September 19th of 1356, and it was one of the decisive battles of the Hundred Years' War, and it took place in France. It was the first major battle after almost a decade of relative quiet, and we'll talk about why there was a decade of quiet. And it actually pitted a small English army against a French military that was three times its size. Uh, and it features some interesting uh, approaches to combat and some kind of wily moves on the part of the English. And uh, you'll see how it plays out. So just to start off, we're going to do a quick and dirty intro on the Hundred Years' War in case anyone needs a quick catch up. Uh, so when the last direct line Capetian king of France, who was Charles IV, died in 1328, Edward III of England made a move for the throne of France because of his lineage as the grandson of Philip IV of France, who had ruled uh, a bit before Charles IV. Uh, Philip IV's daughter, Isabella, was Edward III's mother. But instead of taking Edward III as their regent, uh, Philip of Valois, who was the nephew of Philip IV, was given rule of France. Nine years later, in 1337, King Philip VI of France confiscated Edward III's Duchy of Aquitaine. This was a fiefdom which sat on what's now French soil. In response, Edward III once again challenged Philip VI right to the throne. So Edward had closer blood ties to Philip IV as grandson than Philip VI did as a nephew. But because of the fact that Edward's bloodline passed through his mother rather than a male relative, and this was an issue of great contention. Yeah, the um, the women being able to carry the royal line was a big problem and had some echoes later on. There's a reason there were no female rulers of France after this whole thing got resolved, uh, and that's part of it. And this challenge of the king's validity as a ruler is often pointed to as the event that ignited the Hundred Years' War. But we should also mention that there was already a very long history of tensions between France and England, uh, which had really led up to it. There were a lot of factors going in, and it, it, even though this is the one event that people point to, there were many sort of smaller catalysts in play already as well. Yeah, I feel like there should be one of those single-use websites where you just, like... <laughs> Was England at war with France? And you just type in a year and it says yes or no. <laughs> and a lot of the time it will be yes. Yes. The Hundred Years' War actually went on for more than a 100 years. It ran from 1337 to 1453. So in terms of the larger ongoing war, the particular event that we're talking about today happened at the end of the second decade. For his part... Edward III was a really skillful strategist, and he was able to use his claim to the throne to win over French royalty and nobles who weren't entirely on board with Philip VI. And in particular, the Flemings, the Montforts, and the and Charles of Navarre were all sided with Edward III. Yeah, Edward was able to use these alliances with discontented French royals to really break up King Philip's power, and he made it extremely difficult for the French regent to govern huge portions of France. And this also served Edward in that it fueled infighting among the French royalty and nobility, because they were all arguing over whether 
this person or that should be sided with England or whether they should be loyal to France. And this overall weakened the country's ability to stand against England as a united front. One of Edward III's other tactics involved the mounting of Chevauchet expeditions. Chevauchet is French for promenade, and that, uh, these military moves involved going through an area and burning and pillaging territory that belonged to the enemy. This broke down the economy and morale of a region rather than engaging in a direct military action. So the intent, generally speaking, was either to force the hand of the enemy and make them fight or to discredit their power and interest in the common good because they weren't moving to defend the lower class subjects. And 10 years prior to the events we're talking about today that happened in 1356, uh, Cressy, France had been soundly defeated by the English, who had had a much smaller army. And as a consequence, the French position, kind of from the Battle of Cressy on, had really been largely one of defense. In the time between the two battles, there had been not a whole lot of confrontation between the two countries, because a much more pressing issue took precedent, and that was the Black Death. So from 1348 to 1356, most of the skirmishes and the, the disagreements between England and France were kind of just skipped over or pushed aside as Europe dealt with the loss of at least one third of its population. And some estimates, uh, depending on what you look at, will actually put the death toll closer to 60 percent of the population. Uh, but one third is generally accepted as a pretty solid guess, and it could have been more. Uh, but even after the first worst wave of the plague had passed, there were these waves of smaller outbreaks to contend with. So it, people were still dying, but in smaller numbers. But sometimes those waves took uh, the populations by surprise. So it's easy to understand why fighting kind of took a back seat. They were just like, we don't really have time to work on this right now. We're kind of busy all trying to survive and not catch the plague. So before we go back to sort of how this conflict gets restarted, do you want to take a moment for a word from a sponsor? Let's do that. So to get back to the story, once the Black Death was fading into history, Edward III's son, who was the Prince of Wales, Edward of Woodstock, was ready to mount a new effort against the French. The Prince of Wales, who was nicknamed the Black Prince in the historic record, probably was not ever called that during his lifetime. He made a name for himself at the Battle of Cressy. In 1356, under orders from his father, he started once again burning and pillaging all through France. Yeah, and this was really immensely successful. Uh, the Black Prince was really good at this, and he was able to loot so much in these raids and these chevauchets that his baggage train was often overloaded with plundered treasures. On August 4th, a raid was mounted against the city of Bourges. And while the usual burning and pillaging were still used, this mission also incorporated military force, spreading the attack between Bourges and the city of Audley. It's estimated that somewhere between 6,000 and 7,000 men were part of the younger Edwards attack. Yeah, so he had gone into France with that number of men, and that, that becomes important later on when you compare it to the numbers of men that the French had at their disposal. Audley was taken by the English prince in this effort, although Bourges was not. And in the course of the raid, Prince Edward's forces also defeated several small bands of French knights. Uh, and they also captured the French town of Romorantin. By the time Romorantin was taken, the French monarch had mounted an army against the English. And at this point, the French were under the rule of Philip VI's successor, Jean II, uh, also known as John the Good or Jean Le Bon. Jean's forces were in pursuit of Edward and his men with the intent to intercept them before they could get back to their base in Bordeaux. 
Learning that Edward's forces were quite nearby, uh, King Jean released an estimated 15,000 to 20,000 of his lesser men. He dismissed them in an effort to keep his army nimble. He wanted them to be able to move quickly to cover what the English were doing. So he could already let go of 15,000 to 20,000 men. So that gives you some sense of sort of the numbers of people he had at his, uh, at his beck and call for military action. When he found out about the French military's approach, Edward made his way along the Loire River toward the west, and he eventually landed at the city of Tours, where he tried to take the city's castle. That move did not work out so well. Uh, the castle was a little too well fortified, and that was really the strength of a lot of French towns, was that their their castles were fairly well built and they were difficult to take. Uh, and the efforts of Edward's men were pretty much for naught. And once they became uh, aware, it was just apparent they were not going to have a successful siege and tour. They were not going to be able to take over the town. Edward commanded his troops instead to uh, burn the surrounding area in the standard chevauchet style. Once the chevauchet at Tours was complete, the English forces headed to Bordeaux. They were pursued by the French in this whole cat-and-mouse game that would go on for nearly two weeks before finally culminating in a decisive action. Yeah, the uh, they were sort of chasing each other around, and sometimes one would try to surge, one part of the, an army would try to surge forward around the other, and they were kind of just chasing each other through the, the countryside at this point. But on Sunday, September 18th, uh, the English forces had passed through Poitiers and they had settled several miles south of the city. And throughout the day, there were these efforts made to strike a treaty between England and France. There were papal envoys basically running back and forth between the two sides that were attempting to find a peaceful resolution to the conflict and avoid a battle happening. The Black Prince is said to have eventually offered to return all of the pillaged goods in return for a seven-year truce. At this point, his men were really weakened by weeks and weeks of travel, and they were running short on provisions. Uh, King Jean II was having none of it. He rejected the offer. His army was significantly larger than Edward's, uh, as we said earlier. So exact numbers were unknown, but it's, it's one of those things where because we're looking so far back uh to the 1300s, an exact count is difficult to get. Uh, you'll see estimates that put it anywhere between 15,000 and 60,000 men. But according to most currently used estimates and most modern historians, it's likely that it was somewhere between 15,000 and 20,000. But in any case, his troops far outnumbered those of his English rival, which at their greatest estimate were around 7,000 men. His counteroffer, which he almost certainly made expecting it to be rejected, was that the Black Prince and his finest 100 knights would surrender themselves. So uh, naturally, this did not fly. And so with no success at an accord, the next step would be battle. And I, I feel like I should give a bit of a caveat uh, as we discuss the arrangement of the battle, because there is some disagreement on the exact layout of how the troops were positioned and where they were positioned. Uh, it, it seems like about 50-50 between two of the most popular ones, so I kind of went with one. So if you uh, do additional research on this and you find descriptions of the battle with slightly different placement details, that's why uh, we're going off, you know, elderly history recounted orally and some of it some of the details just don't quite match up but they're pretty close none of them really contradict each other so much as they just aren't quite the same 
So Prince Edward, uh, at this point, was working with the knowledge that the woods in the area were almost impenetrable. And so he kind of used that as he said about strategizing the placement of his men. And at this point, there was some degree to which he was trapped, uh, kind of up against some of these very dense woods. So he was working from a defensive position. The English troops at this point are said to have been so desperate for provisions that they actually gave their horses wine to drink because they were out of water. Yeah, I guess uh drunk horses will do a better job than dead horses. So they were they were kind of uh coming up with desperate solutions for their their lack of provisions. And Prince Edward nestled his men into a position with the woods of Saint-Pierre to the left of them and the woods of Noailles to the rear of them. And the dense thicket of this area meant that both the left flank and the rear could not be ambushed by any sort of sneak attack. And he also used an existing hedgerow to protect his front line. Uh, and there was a, a bit of a dip in front of it, almost like a ditch. So it was, would have been very hard for the French to come up that, that incline and through the hedgerow. And there was also a trench along the right side of his troops that offered some protection. Infantrymen stood in the front line and they were commanded by the Earl of Salisbury and the Earl of Warwick. And Prince Edward commanded the cavalry and they rode in behind. So then there was a group of archers armed with longbows who stood to either side of the English troops. To get at the English army, the French military would have to scale the hedgerow and the ridge that it stood on. And Jean II's army was organized a bit differently. It was organized into three waves. So the first group was led by the inexperienced Crown Prince Charles, who was, uh, and that group was several thousand men strong. And the division behind the Dauphins was helmed by the Duke of Orléans, and that consisted of about 3,000 to 4,000 troops. And the last group, led by King Jean II, was sizable. It was uh, somewhere between 6,000 and 7,000 men. So it was close to the number of the entire English army. And Jean II and almost two dozen of his knights dressed identically for the battle so as to confuse English troops that were, you know, their primary goal was in the end going to be to capture the king. In addition to these three groups of soldiers, 2,000 crossbowmen from Genoa fought for France. Their mission was to take out the English archers so that the French could advance against the Black Prince's forces. And there's actually a little bit of debate about the first move that happened in the early morning of September 19th, which kind of kicked off the events of the battle. So the English troops led by Warwick started to move to the south along an old Roman road. But whether this was part of a plan to begin the battle or attempt to retreat is actually a little bit unclear. And it's also uh, a possibility that because the uh, wagon full of loot was in that group, that they may have been just trying to protect the stuff that they had been pillaging all this time. But it did catalyze action. The French advanced on the Warwick's moving left flank, and they also went for the right flank, and this left their Genoese crossbowmen unprotected. Uh, English longbowmen, their archers, immediately began firing, and they were uh, shooting off as many as 10 shots per minute per man by some accounts. Many of the mounted French troops uh, were brought down with their horses. They had actually been warned by one of the, the one of uh, King Jean II's war council that the horses were going to be a problem. If if the archers of England could take down the horses, they were going to cause some uh, panic and some mayhem on the field. So those that survived this volley of arrows struggled in an effort to move forward on this field that was now becoming cluttered with downed horses. And horsemen who had been thrown from their mounts or able to dismount when their horses were struck were then at this disadvantage because they were on foot in heavy armor. 
Meanwhile, Warwick's division that had been moving seemingly away from the battle had stopped their movement and they turned to fight the oncoming attack. And this sort of confused uh, and rapid initial volley between the two ended up with the first wave of French troops being quickly defeated. The Dauphin moved his men forward next, and he focused primarily on the English right flank. This advance was made pretty clumsily because the remaining men of the previous group, which had met with such a huge failure, were all trying to retreat across the same ground at the same time. Yeah, not really like moving like a Swiss clock. They were all kind of causing each other to have some problems. uh, And the French seemed to continually be uh, their own worst enemy to some degree. So the Dauphin's wave attempted to breach the hedgerow, and they ended up battling with the English for more than two hours straight, which, as you can imagine, was quite exhausting. Uh, And eventually the Dauphin ordered a retreat. Uh, King Jean II sent his son, the Dauphin, and some of his men away from the battlefield uh, because they were so exhausted. Because at this point, this battle had been going on to four to five hours, depending on the account that you read. Some of the English troops are said to have thought the battle was over at this point. They couldn't actually see all the remaining French fighters because of where they were placed. And so they started to tend to the wounded and assess the situation. So this was theoretically the perfect time for King Jean II to take control of the battle. So the king's division started to move forward. But at the same time, possibly because they were confused or panicked, the Duke of Orléans took his troops from the field following the, friend, the prince who had already you know, been on his way away. This disrupted King Jean's move forward because he was trying to move forward in the same place as the men were running away in different directions. Yeah, it really was like sort of, if it weren't such a tragic thing to be involved in battle, in my head, this is like a Benny Hill moment where every time like one French group of French troops tries to move forward, the ones that had come before them are running either at them or to the side and preventing their progression. So they kind of wasted this opportunity that they had where um the Black Prince uh, Prince Edward of England, you know, had his troops kind of, they were breaking things down. They were figuring out, you know, what their losses were. But instead, they, uh, they did, they lost that moment of advantage when the English troops were not ready because they were all trying to cross the battlefield in different directions at the same time. So as the king's large division finally made its way forward, the remaining English troops, now having been obviously alerted to the fact that things were happening still and the battle was going on, they consolidated all their men except for one small group of somewhere between 160 and 200. And this little cabal of English soldiers was able to quietly mount some horses, some men stayed on foot, and they rode around the right flank of the English army under cover of this very dense thicket, and they circled behind the French forces. So as the French were finally able to engage Edward's troops, this small group that had snuck around the battle attacked the French from the left flank and the rear. This probably served the English more psychologically than in terms of actual military force, because the French were completely thrown into chaos, believing they were being attacked on three sides, even though there was only a small number of English troops at their rear and their left. And so in this sort of moment of panic where they thought possibly for a moment that they were either outnumbered or just outgunned, many of the French fighters ran. And those who stayed on in battle kind of clustered in small groups to fight, but they were uh, basically just defeated pretty handily by reinvigorated English troops. 
the disguise ruse of the king and his duplicately dressed knights also worked right up until the king was the only one of them left fighting. He eventually surrendered to one of Edward's knights. Yeah, it was actually a, a French knight who was uh, sided with Edward. So I, I have to wonder if that didn't sting a bit for the French king to surrender to. Theoretically, what should have been one of his own countrymen. Uh, and before we go on to talk about sort of the fallout of this battle, uh, let's do a quick word from our sponsor. So once uh, things had settled down and the dust had cleared, at the end of the day, roughly 2,500 French troops had been killed at the Battle of Poitiers, and another 2,000 men were captured. Edward's forces, on the other hand, lost very few men. The sort of biggest estimate is just a few hundred. So in comparison, they really did very well, even though they were much smaller. King John II was held by England for four years while his ransom was decided and the terms of a treaty were discussed. The number that was eventually decided on for the ransom was three million crowns. In addition to the ransom, Edward III was given Aquitaine once again, this time in a slightly larger version than the territory France had actually confiscated. In return, Edward would withdraw his claim to the French crown. Yeah, that was all laid out in the Treaty of Brittany. Uh, and once those terms were established, they let King Jean go, and instead of him, his son Louis of Anjou served as captive, and that was so that Jean II could return to France to raise the money that was now owed to England. But France had broken down considerably in terms of economic stability. The Black Death and then the raids and the Battle of Poitiers had taken a really significant toll It was more difficult than expected to raise this ransom money in the six months that had been negotiated to do it. And so uh, Louis, this is one of the sons of King Jean, kind of grew tired of waiting on this payment. He was stuck in England uh, as the the surrogate prisoner for his father. And after it just became apparent that this money was not coming in, he attempted to negotiate his own treaty in terms of release. But that didn't go so well. So instead, uh, the Dauphin Louis escaped in 1363. Mortified by his son's behavior, King Jean II went back to England of his own accord, believing that he must uphold the values of chivalry and honor. So unfortunately, while he was warmly greeted in England, he got sick while he was there and he died in 1364. Yeah, apparently King Jean II was a great guy, and the English really liked having him around. So when he came back, uh, especially because he did come back of his own volition to fulfill this agreement uh, after his son had escaped, he was like given a, a parade and people cheered for him in the streets. Uh, and what's really interesting is that uh, the Battle of Poitiers, along with the Battle of Crecy and the Battle of Agincourt, sort of stands as one of the three decisive events of the Hundred Years' War. But a lot of times the Battle of Poitiers really gets a lot less attention than the other two. One of the interesting things is that the use of longbows during this time pretty significantly changed warfare in Europe. Uh, and the Battle of Poitiers is often cited by historians as an example of the English being more adaptive on the battlefield than the French. Uh, and in this instance, that led to their success. It kind of shifted this idea of like, we will line up in the two rows and we will do the old school battle. And it had a little bit more to do with strategy and kind of thinking on your feet. Uh, so it's interesting and cool. Uh, as much as war can be cool, it's uh, uh, cool to see how things shifted during that time. So that is the Battle of Poitiers. Uh, and now, I have two pieces of listener mail. 
This uh, email is from our listener, Mary Rose, and she says, Hi, ladies. I just finished listening to your Kanto Earthquake podcast, and I have a question. You mentioned that many of the buildings in the area were vulnerable to quake damage as they were made of wood. Were the buildings you're referring to rickety or poorly constructed? The reason I ask is that I live in a very quake-prone Wellington, New Zealand, and experience teeth-rattlingly strong earthquakes all the time. I live in a wooden house and feel safer when we have a quake because wood is flexible and can move with the shake rather than inflexible concrete or brick, which tends to crack and crumble. Uh, anywho, love the podcast. Thanks for the great work that you do. Um, yeah, it wasn't just that it was an issue of it being particularly vulnerable to the quake, but the fires that came after really consumed all of the wood buildings. So if I characterize that to be exclusively that it was a quake issue, uh, my apologies, because that was not the intent. Uh, Japan at that point was having quakes all the time. It wasn't like they weren't used to them. Uh, many of those buildings had been around for quite a while. It really, in that case, was the fire that just basically turned those to kindling in seconds. So thank you for that question, Mary Rose. And I love the term teeth rattlingly strong. I'm going to start using that one. And the next email comes from our listener, Nicole. Uh, she says, hello, Holly and Tracy. I'm a textile conservator that works at the museum at FIT, which is a fashion-based history museum in New York City. Oh, my goodness, Nicole, that sounds delightful. Uh, first, she says, I would like to thank you ladies for your podcast. I regularly listen to you guys while I conserve and prepare museum objects for exhibition, as was the case today. I wanted to respond to the question posed by listener Allison at the end of the Red Ghost and Camel Corps podcast. We just finished installing an exhibition on the history of lingerie, and if Allison is anywhere near New York City, she might enjoy checking it out. The show is called Exposed, and it displays a range of garments from as early as the 18th century up to present day. If New York is too much of a trek for Allison or anyone else interested, there's also an amazing catalog of all the objects shown in the exhibition. And then she gives us a link to the exhibit page and also another article that has a really good slideshow of the pieces that are in it. And we'll put those links in our show notes. She says, also, as an aside, I really enjoy listening to episodes that you have done in the past about fashion. The Poiret episode from a long time ago is spot on. My thesis was on him. And the Rose Bretin episode was fantastic, too. And then she gives us a list of uh, topics that she feels are not so well known today, but famous in their day designers that would make great topics for a show. Nicole, I am happy to tell you all of those people were on my list already. I just try to spread the fashion out because while it's one of my uh, very favorite things, you know, it can't all be fashion talk. Uh, so that's the scoop. If you would like to write to us and share your thoughts or any cool exhibits you know about that could help educate us all, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. So uh, just a heads up in case you missed it earlier, that is a little bit of a change to our email address. We're kind of going back to an old, old email address. You can also connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash history, on Twitter at history on mistinhistory.tumblr.com and at pinterest.com slash mistinhistory. You can also visit us at our website, which is, surprise, mistinhistory.com. Uh, if you would like to learn a little bit more about a topic that was related to today's podcast, you can go to our parent website and type in the word archery in the search bar. And two of the articles you'll get are how crossbows work and how bow hunting works. So both related to what we talked about today. And you can research that and almost anything else your mind can conjure at our parent site, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 